You're listening to Episode. I'm Natalie. You may also know me on the internet streets as Tali or Miss Tali. Or maybe you've never heard of me at all, and that's fine too. I went on a quest to learn little known stories about Haiti. So I talked with a group of amazing Haitian scholars and thinkers and asked them to tell me a favorite anecdote of theirs. And now I'm inviting you to come learn with me. Anale. There have been moments while making this podcast that have been so coincidental, it feels incomplete to call it just that. It's poetry, really. Just two weekends ago, the opera We Shall Not Be Moved had its world premiere right here in Philly at the O Festival hosted by Philadelphia Opera. The story takes place at the site of a tragic event that too many people don't know about in 1985 Philadelphia. The story of the MOVE organization, a controversial black liberation organization founded in 1972. That day in 1985, after a standoff between the MOVE organization and the police, it ended with the police bombing and burning an entire neighborhood, killing 11 people, five of which were children. If you don't know the story, please look it up. The opera was composed by Daniel Bernard Roumet, a Haitian-American, and libretto, which is opera talk for the text of an opera, by another Haitian-American, Mug Balmuti Joseph. So this piece where two Haitian-Americans use the opera stage to retell an important piece of recent history in Black America premiered while I was in the middle of editing today's episode. Today's episode, I speak to Dr. Naomi Andre, Black musicologist and professor at University of Michigan, who has a message that Black people around the world are rewriting ourselves into history through the opera stage, and we should all be listening. But this isn't new. In the 1940s, the first opera by a Black American composer to be produced by a major opera company in the United States told the story of our very own, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. So my training is as an historical musicologist, which means looking at Western European classical music. And I love that music, and I'm a big believer that this is music that everybody who has any interest should get to know because it's music for everyone. These are treasures for everyone. Well, in my graduate work, I was interested, and I was in graduate school in the 1990s primarily, and there was something called the new musicology happening where we began, people in the discipline began asking questions that weren't just about the notes on the page and how they got them. They were asking questions about representation. Where are the women composers? How do we think about gender in music? How do we think about sexuality in music? And sadly, very few people at that point were even asking questions about race and ethnicity. My early work was looking at gender in music and particularly in opera. And then I started asking questions. Well, okay, how about race and ethnicity? I'm in the audience and I'm one of the only people of color and frequently the only black person in the opera house, which was my specialty. Um, I, I have some questions and all sorts of questions in terms of why are there so few black composers? But guess what? They're black people who are singing opera, writing symphonies, writing string quartets, and I would barely find them. And I'm like, wait a minute, is this the only one? Naomi is the co-editor of a book titled Blackness in Opera, which 
analyzes the way blackness plays out in the context of opera. And there are a number of scholars like her researching and rediscovering black voices in the Western classical tradition. We are beginning to write more black composers and singers and performers back into history. They've been there, but there hasn't been a lot of numbers. And we're just beginning to find things like, you know, I have a, a really good colleague, Kristen Turner, who's doing research about Theodore Drury. An African-American man, a singer, an opera singer who had an opera company in the first years of the 20th century. And then I have another friend, Karen Bryan, who's doing work on Mary Caldwell Dawson, an African-American woman who in the 1940s and 50s had the National Negro Opera Company. And it's like, how come I haven't heard of this? Who was keeping this from me? This would have made me feel more entitled to jump in to these areas. Like most other areas of performing arts, Black representation in opera is not only lacking, but the very few roles that have historically existed for people of color often are given to white actors. One major example, just in 2015, the Metropolitan Opera in New York for the first time ever performed Otello based on the Shakespeare play without the blackface. Only two years ago, and they've been doing this opera since 1891. I'm also not saying that they casted a person of color for the first time. I'm saying they decided to finally not paint the actor casted in dark paint to depict the more that is featured in the story. The opera stage is the only stage I know of, whether we're talking TV, Broadway, film and theater. People just don't do blackface anymore. And yet in opera, you have it today and you'll have it tomorrow. It is a, a continuing thing. With the role of Verdi Zatello, it is such a demanding role. You need a very big tenor voice who can go high, who can be very agile and flexible and project over a huge orchestra. There are not many tenors on the planet of any color who can sing that role. However, we have a pipeline issue. Are there black people who could sing a tello? Absolutely. But they're not found, they're not being trained. How many black Atellos might we have in Flint, Michigan, where the water has been contaminated and we're poisoning our young people, white and a huge number of African-American people. So there's these huge, larger issues that are that have nothing to do with talent and ability. All right, it's story time. And yes, this is still a podcast about Haitian history. And today, Naomi tells us the story about the time Haitian history and Black American history came together on the operatic stage in 1949. The best known Black composer out there probably is William Grant Still. And I say that William Grant Still might be the best known Black composer because he was the first of a lot of things and did another very big, important genre, the symphony. He was the first Black composer to have a symphony performed by a major orchestra. And that was in 1931 by the Rochester Philharmonic. And that's um, William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony. 
still wrote, he's called frequently the dean of African-American composers. He wrote ballet, string quartets, songs in the style of spirituals. So he crossed over. He was born in 1895, lived until 1978. And one of his most important operas was called Troubled Island. Yes. And this is based on the Haitian Revolution that set in 1791. The focus, interestingly, is on Jean Jacques Dessalines, and in an earlier version, um, Toussaint Louverture might have been a part of it, but he ended up not being in the final version. The um, opera has a libretto by Langston Hughes, so you've got this incredibly wonderful duo. Langston Hughes did the beginning, and then the additions to the libretto were by William Grant Still's wife, Verna Avery. This opera was premiered by the New York City Opera in 1949, and it was the first grand opera that was composed by an African-American composer to be performed by a major company. The premiere cast featured Robert Weed and Marie Powers in the roles of Jean-Jacques Dessalines and his wife Azilia, white actors in blackface. I know, a mess. But also Robert McFerrin Sr. in the role of a voodoo priest, who was, by the way, the legendary Bobby McFerrin's father. Very sadly, this opera is not has not continued to be in the in the canon. There's a premise that's put out there that there were the reviewers of the first performance who decided to give negative reviews. The premiere was met with thunderous applause by the audience. The cast received 22 curtain calls. That's 22 times the cast walked off and came back out to bow again because the audience was still applauding. 22 times. But the reviews it received in the press didn't necessarily reflect that. One was never sure one was hearing a first-rate performance of an inferior work or a second-rate performance of a good one. The New York Post... Composer Still's music, sometimes lusciously scored, sometimes naively melodic, often had more prettiness than power. In all, Troubled Island had more of the souffle of operetta than the soup bone of opera. Time magazine in their review entitled Troubled Opera. Because there was some sort of backlash or clash, Langston Hughes um, had gone to um, Spain to be involved with the Spanish Civil War um, after he had written the libretto. Some people thought that as we're beginning, moving into the 1950s, that there was thought of anti-communist backlash against this. Um, Other people say, well, it's because um, they were black men, that this opera couldn't be given a successful premiere and somebody had to bring it down. I mean, I don't know. I think there were three performances. And um, in the, I think, March 31st in 1949, one in April, and then one at the very beginning of May. And then and then it went away, which makes no sense because there's so much work to put an opera together. Everybody needs to learn the music. You have sets and costumes. And so if there was some sort of clack or some sort of comment against it, um, that certainly would explain a lot. I want to revisit the point I made earlier about the poetic moments of making this podcast. Episode two of this podcast, which I'm sorry non-Creole speakers couldn't understand, I spoke with Wibel Altus, a historian who told us about the implications of the Haitian Revolution throughout the world. And he told us just last episode 
that the powers that be at the time did everything they could to asphyxiate Haiti and the story of the revolution to keep it from inspiring enslaved and marginalized people everywhere. And they did just that. But they weren't always successful, right? The revolution still managed to inspire insurrections around the colonies in the Caribbean, in South America, and in the United States. And it still managed to inspire revolutionary art in the years that followed. And that's how we can end up with a troubled island composed by Black American composers. The narratives that attempt to explain what happened to Still's troubled island are many. But here's what we do know. We know that in 1949, in a racist industry, the first opera by a Black American composer to be produced by a major opera company premiered in New York City. We know that it told the story of the first and largest successful slave rebellion. And we also know that this opera has disappeared from the canon. A really fun thing I've been finding in my research, how opera has become an unlikely genre where particularly Black people are using it to rewrite themselves back into history. What makes this particularly poignant is that we have the history of minstrelsy. That's a place where you had white people who would blacken up. And then even later in the 19th century, black people would perform primarily because it was a place where they could be performers, where they could be composers. So given that history, it's even more incredible, I think. But we have composers like Anthony Davis, who's written X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X in 1980. He's also the only African composer living today who has had multiple major opera commissions. Richard Thompson, Leslie Adams, Kiro Okoya, who's a female composer who's written an opera about Harriet Tubman. I found that this is happening in South Africa since 1994 after apartheid. And they are not just doing little rinky-dink operas. They're doing major operas on Winnie Mandela, the Nelson Trilogy, on um, The Flower of Shembay. So across the Atlantic, we have opera being sort of taken over and revoiced where Black people are writing, we're writing ourselves into history. I love that stuff. Okay, okay, I've given y'all plenty of things to go and Google now. If you want to learn more, check out the book Blackness in Opera. I'm so grateful to Naomi Andre for granting me this interview who has a new book coming out in spring of 2018 entitled Black Opera in the U.S. and South Africa. Be on the lookout for that. Special thank you to David Chavon, the amazing pianist in the scoring for this episode, who is joined by James Miller and Kevin Jones on the flute and cello. The piece you heard throughout this episode is the third movement of Undine Smith-Moore's Afro-American Suite. Shout out to my makeshift team, JB, for helping conceptualize this episode, Ed and Constance for the awesome voiceover work, and Tina for the major help in editing. Don't forget to follow us at Way Magazine, W-O-Y Magazine, and to read us at www.waymagazine.com.